This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That is 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. So when we get into our main section about what we're talking about today, I want you to keep that scripture in mind. But guys, I do want to remind you that the algorithm that basically allows people to find our show. They love reviews and they especially love positive five-star reviews. So if you're not reviewed us yet on Spotify or on Apple podcasts, please make sure you do that. If you're following us on YouTube, but you haven't subscribed yet, make sure you go do that. But again, we love the five-star reviews. Leave us a few lines why you like this and the algorithms will get this out to more people. Again, we are also a listener supported, mainly listener supported ministry. So we get some money from advertisements, but the overwhelming majority of how we're able to keep the lights on here is because we get donations. So if you guys will go to undaunted.life backslash donate, if you like what we do, if you like what content we put out there for you guys, if you like this podcast, if you want to see what go further and expand, and we've got some crazy stuff coming for 2023 that we need your help with, go to undaunted.life backslash donate. And then again, I'm just going to be announcing this uh, every week until we actually get there. But I do have a speaking engagement that is open to the public. So if you are going to be anywhere near Edmond, Oklahoma, that's just north of Oklahoma City, uh, Faith Bible Church on Sunday, September the 18th at 6 p.m. I am delivering my speech, defeating pro-abortion arguments, and I'm doing that live. But I do want to say one thing, because I think I mentioned it a couple other times on the show. You need, if you're going to come and you have kiddos, they are going to provide childcare at the church, which is a great blessing for a lot of people, because I know there are a lot of families that are wanting to come out, small groups and things like that. But there is a link that I'm putting in the show notes today that if you're going to come, you just need to let our church know how many kids you're going to be bringing. Okay. So we don't want them to be expecting, you know, 50 kids there. And then, you know, there's 400 kids or something like that. That would be a disaster. So make sure if you plan on coming and you're bringing your kids that you let the church know that link is in the show notes and did want to give a little shout out here. So this isn't what we're talking about today, but I did want to give a little shout out to a sermon that I just listened to this morning because it was legitimately one of the best sermons I've heard recently. Uh, so, you know, obviously I listened to the sermons at my church. And then I pick up sermons here and there through podcasts and YouTube videos or whatever. But Pastor Joby Martin out of Florida, so uh, Church of 1120. So he was on the podcast a few months ago. You guys love that interview. He's going through Psalms right now. So I forget how many weeks he's doing. I think it's like 20, 21 weeks or something like that. But back in, I believe it was June, week seven of his Psalms series, it's called As the Deer. So it's obviously talking about Psalm 42. Man, he's normally real you know, happy and jovial and he's still hitting his points and he's still hard going. But this one was more serious than any of the other sermon sermons that I've heard him do, but he completely changed, completely changed how I view Psalm 42. Okay. And so I think it's an ultimate, um, it's just a unique thing for you guys. I think you should take that in. So in the show notes today, I've provided a link to the Apple podcast one, since I know most of you listen to podcasts on Apple podcasts, but you can easily find it on Spotify and everywhere else you get your podcast. But again, that is Joby Martin's Psalms week seven as the deer. So today in the quick hitter segment, we're going to discuss the university of central Oklahoma, employing a compelled speech mandate concerning student pronouns, Boston children's hospital, taking heat for castrating and mutilation of children, Minneapolis public school, targeting white teachers for termination, flash mobs in California trading dancing in for looting, and Serena Williams thinking it's unfair that she's a woman. 
But before we get into the meat of the podcast today, I think I've used that transition before, but if I haven't, that was a nice one because we need to talk about the sponsor for today's show. That is Casey Cattle Company. So guys, there are a lot of meat delivery subscriptions out there. I've talked about that a lot before, but there is only one that is U.S. military veteran owned, U.S. military veteran operated, and all of their beef, chicken, and pork products are produced here in the United States. There is literally one of those companies, and that's KC Cattle Company. So they specialize in Wagyu beef. So if you've not heard of that before, this is kind of a different way of breeding the cattle, but it's known for its mutations that allow for like up to 10 times the amount of intramuscular fat, which gives you that marbling on that steak or on that roast that you really, really want to get the taste that you want. It's it's such it's such good stuff. I just got to tell you, like I got an email this morning. Let me see if I can go in here and find it. I'm literally just going to do this live. But I got an email this morning because my next shipment's coming in because they do those monthly shipments. And I just want to run down the stuff that's going to be in this shipment. So there's going to be Wagyu strip steaks. There's a couple of those. There's Wagyu Suadero. It's taco meat. I've never really heard that before, but I'm excited to try that. A boneless chuck roast, a chuck eye steak or two chuck eye steaks. A chuck plate, short ribs. I've never made short ribs before, but I'm excited to try that and give that a go. Red, white, and boom, Berkshire pork bratwurst. I love bratwurst. And then some Berkshire porterhouse pork chops. And so, like, I haven't made a whole lot of pork chops either, so I'm going to have to, like, really kind of bone up on, on the stuff that I'm doing to make sure that I can get all this squared away. But, guys, they sell everything. A lot of the stuff that I mentioned, but, again, it's Wagyu steaks, Wagyu roast, pasture-raised chicken, pasture-raised Berkshire pork, Wagyu bacon cheeseburger bratwurst, and, guys, I just got to tell you, they're world famous Wagyu gourmet hot dogs. I just had them here recently and I gave them to my kid. And I mean, like, it doesn't make sense. It literally doesn't make sense when you're eating it because Food and Wine named it, you know, the best hot dog in the world. And that's fine because, you know, they could have been paid off to do that or maybe they're stupid, but it literally doesn't make sense while you're eating it because it's been called a tube steak, but that's exactly what it tastes like. It's like, I'm looking at a hot dog, but I'm tasting a steak. It literally does not make any sense, but you guys have got to go out and try their products. So guys go to kccattlecompany.com. That will be in the show notes, kccattlecompany.com. Use the promo code Kyle to get 15% off of your order. Again, the promo code is just my first name, Kyle. That's K-Y-L-E for 15% off your order at kccattlecompany.com. So now let's go ahead and get into the meat of the show. And that is a pro-lifer calmly dismantling Joe Rogan. Okay, so you've probably seen this because everything kind of went viral in and around this thing. But the pro-lifer I'm talking about is the CEO of the Babylon Bee, and his name is Seth Dillon. And the subject matter that he calmly dismantled Joe Rogan on was the subject of abortion. So this was on Tuesday, August the 16th. Seth Dillon, the CEO of the Babylon Bee, appeared on the biggest podcast in the world, The Joe Rogan Experience. It is episode 1857 on Spotify, so you can go check that out. That's in the show notes as well. But they talked about a lot of stuff. Uh, the main thing that he was on there for is because obviously the Babylon Bee has been banned from Twitter for a tweet where they uh, can, where they looked at uh, uh, Levine, you know, the dude that's dressing up as a woman that works for the Biden administration, Rachel Levine. Um, they named him the their man of the year or something like that. It was just kind of like this funny tongue in cheek thing because it was after I believe the USA Today had him as a finalist for woman of the year. So I thought that that was very interesting, very funny. Twitter thought it was hate speech. And so they're demanding that the Babylon Bee take down that tweet before they can come back on the platform and they're refusing to do so. So they spent a lot of time talking about that, a lot of time kind of talking about what what's going on in the world. And so I was excited to listen to that episode, but before I listened to it, 
There was a clip that Lila Rose from Live Action, who's been on the show a couple of times, she tweeted out this three-minute little segment of their discussion. And this three-minute little segment of their discussion went mega viral. I mean, that little video has been viewed over a million times, you know, in less than a week. And so it was a clip of their discussion about the issue of abortion, right? Pro-life versus pro-choice. Now, this clip is edited for time, not for content, okay? So if you look at it, like there are some, you know, transitions. So it's like, oh, you know, I wonder if they took this out of context. Guys, you can listen to the entire interview. Like if you listen to everything and listen to all these different things, like uh, that's inside that conversation, nothing changes about the meat of the conversation, okay? So in the entire interview, you can see how they went back and forth if you go and view it fully. So what I want to do here on this podcast is I want to do a breakdown of this clip, okay? I'm going to go piece by piece on this three-minute clip to show you literally the masterful job that Seth Dillon did during this part of the interview. Okay, because most of the interview is fun. It's certainly worth your time. Again, I'm a big Joe Rogan fan. I disagree with a a bunch of stuff that he says and a bunch of his worldviews. But we're going to go ahead and get into this video here. So come along with us. You don't have the right to tell my 14-year-old daughter she has to carry her rapist baby. You understand that? To look that woman in the eye who was the born of a rapist. Do you understand that? That's a 14-year-old child. If a 14-year-old child gets raped, you say that they have to carry that baby? So right here from the very, very beginning, Rogan immediately goes to the exception of the exception of the exception scenario. Okay. So rape, right? A girl, a 14 year old girl impregnated by a rapist. Okay. Now, one thing that I've seen here recently, guys, is that more and more pro-abortion people, especially since the Dobb decision came down, they are starting their arguments from there which is very, very interesting because used to, and perhaps I'm missing this, but I don't think so. A lot of these other debates started in other places, right? You know, a woman's right to choose my body, my choice. Uh, You know, you only care about the baby before they're born, you know, just different places, no uterus, no opinion. But now it starts, well, what about rape and incest? Like pro-abortion people are leading with that in commercials and campaign ads and all these different things. Like that's where it's starting. And that's where a lot of the misinformation begins with a lot of these things, because we're seeing tens of millions of dollars dumped into the midterm elections, which we'll talk way more about that, just basically putting out abortion, misinformation, disinformation. But literally, they kick off. Joe Rogan kicks off this abortion discussion by going right to that point, which is a very, very disingenuous argument, because, again, if you did what Ben Shapiro does and you just basically put him to a decision and say, okay, well, we'll allow abortion in the cases of rape and incest, but then all the other 99 percent of abortions are going to be made illegal. Are you okay with that? And a guy like Joe Rogan would never, never, ever go for that. Okay, back to the clip here. I don't think two wrongs make a right. I don't think that's murder, not, I don't I don't think think murder is an answer to, I don't think murder fixes a rape. So this was a perfect response at this point in the discussion. I don't think murder fixes a rape. I don't think murder fixes a rape because when you have someone bring up that, you know, exception of an exception of an exception scenario, you have to say like, you know, wait a minute, like adding a murder to a rape doesn't get rid of the rape. You know, we've talked about this with the guys from 40 Days for Life. They've talked to so many of these women that had abortions after they were raped. And now that woman has two macabre anniversaries in her life. The first is the anniversary of the date that she was raped. And the second, it was the anniversary of the date that she murdered her child. Right. And you can tell at this point that Joe Rogan is getting very, very agitated, right? He's getting very, very agitated enough to where he's interrupting Dylan, to where he's just doing everything he can to talk over him. Okay. So keep that in mind as we keep this going here. What if we're talking about an abortion when the fetus, like literally it's like six weeks, four weeks, three days. 
What if she just turned positive just now? Positive for pregnancy. I don't. I well, I just disagree that. What if can, it just happened that today? You can like draw a line on when you can't. Like, once life so you has can't begun, do, I don't at think you the draw very lines. moment. So again, right here, you can barely hear what Dylan's saying because Joe Rogan's talking over him. But he says that once. This is what Dylan's saying. He says that once life has begun, you can't just draw lines, right? This is an argument that a lot of pro-life people have made. Is like, okay, at what line is it okay to kill this baby? Right. You have to draw the line somewhere. So when you say, oh, you know, 12 weeks of gestation. So you're literally telling me that this thing is somehow more valuable at the 12 week anniversary date of gestation than 11 days or sorry, 11 weeks, six days. Like what changed? What magically changed here? Right. And they can't give you an answer, but they usually just kind of throw their hands up and say, well, you got to draw a line somewhere. And like, well, why draw it while they're still in the womb? Why can't you draw, draw that line even after they've been born? Because again, like I've got a two-year-old and a five-month-old. Would my life be a lot easier if I didn't have them? Yeah. Well, why can't I have that same opinion about their life or death as I could have had and my wife could have had when they were in the womb? They can't answer that. They, like, they literally don't have a cogent answer for that. All right, back to the clip here. I would lay it out like this. I would say it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human life. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human life. Therefore, abortion is wrong. And I don't think any of the, I don't think any of the examples of like, oh, well, how developed is it? You know, can it, can it think? Is it conscious? Can it dream? Can it feel pain? So for you, it's the moment of conception. I think that if it's a, if it's a human life, an indis a distinct human life, then I think it's wrong to, to end its life. So that is the pro-abortion argument. You've heard it said a few different ways. I think I've couched it and said it a few different ways as well. But this is exactly what he said. So I'll read it verbatim. His quote. It is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human life. Abortion intentionally kills an innocent human life. Therefore, abortion is wrong. And the funny thing is when I see people bring this up, like this, this logic and, and kind of this way of thinking, pro-abortion people can't really destroy any part of that argument because everyone that has a, a functioning brain that isn't completely evil would say, yeah, it's wrong to kill innocent human life. Yeah, and, and abortion intentionally kills an innocent human life. Therefore, abortion is wrong. That's the only argument that these people have is they go into saying, well, it's not a human life yet. Well, it's not viable yet. Well, it's not valuable yet, which is a crazy place for them to argue from, but it's what they do. So back to the clip. Um, and so you think that even, once, do you think that like once the conception happens, there's some sort of a miraculous event, like at the very moment, like you could literally get to the point where the sperm cracks the egg. If you could scoop that egg out right there, would that be abortion? Well, I mean, at some point you're going to have to say there was a magic moment that happened because you believe that we eventually become valuable humans, right? Well, listen, where, I, where's, I, the, where's the moment where you think the magic happened? So that's a little bit of a weird clip in the original clip. So it kind of clipped that off at the very end, but it says, where do you think the magic happened? Okay. So there's some good and there's some bad here. Okay. So I've been with him. He's been doing great this entire time, but I'm going to be a little bit critical here. So when Joe asked him if, if it was an abortion, if you could scoop out that one celled zygote and, you know, created after the one celled sperm meets the one celled egg and they come together to create a one celled zygote, Seth didn't just say yes. And he should have. He should have said yes. So I didn't think that was very good. So he kind of, you know, moved it around a little bit, but then he got to the good part, what I thought was good. And he said, where's the moment where you think the magic happens? But he kind of, you know, it took him a while to kind of circle the drain before he got to that point. And guys, just a little, you know, quick aside, when you're in these conversations with people, 
uh, it's very easy for people that are not a part of the conversation to later look at you and say, oh, you should have said this or you should have done that. Why didn't you say this? Have you ever read a book? Have you ever done this? Have you ever done that? So, you know, I'm being critical of a guy that was in the middle of a conversation. So I'm just kind of breaking this down for your sake. Because I remember when I went on Mike Ritland's podcast about a year ago, people were like, we talked for three hours and we spent probably an hour, hour and a half of it talking about God. And, you know, this is a guy that doesn't believe in God and all that. And the only people that got mad at me, I've talked about this before, were Christians. They're like, well, why didn't you use this apologetic technique? And why didn't you quote this? And why didn't you do that? And blah, blah, blah. It's like, well, because I was in the conversation and you got to hear the words that I said and the words that he said, but you weren't in our brains thinking about where this was going to go and where we wanted to land and what we talked about before the microphone started recording and after the microphones were turned off, you weren't there for that. So I'm, I'm very sensitive to that fact, but I, I just kind of get back to my commentary here. When you ask Joe, where's the moment where you think the magic happens? Okay. And if you go back, cause it doesn't do it in this clip. If you go back to the episode, he can't really give an answer because if you give an answer, you're giving away the fact that you really, really don't believe in biology because the only place in the universe where DNA sprouts out of nowhere is when that one celled sperm touches the one celled egg and they become bind and become a one celled zygote. All of your DNA in that exact moment is there. Nothing changes. You are a living human at that point. That is a living human because cell division is taking place. Uh, cell repair is taking place. Metabolism is taking place. All that stuff is taking place. That only happens in living things. Okay. But again, even someone like Joe Rogan, who would purportedly say, support the science and believe the science and do all those different things. And let's go back to the biology. He can't argue based on biology because that doesn't work for him either. Right. So a little bit of good, a little bit of bad in that segment, but we'll get back into this one here. This is a fairly lengthy quote that we'll let you get into here. So back to the clip. When we start talking about harmful misinformation and the, t the types of things that are considered like that I say or that we tweet or the jokes that we make that are considered harmful mis misinformation. I'm like, well, what about what about calling that baby a clump of cells? I think that's harmful misinformation because then you're, you're encouraging people to kill it like it's nothing when it's actually a human life. It's a developing human life. I think abortion is health care the way that rape is lovemaking. If we want to, if we want to use rape as an example, I think it's, I think they're, they're opposites, and 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 it's like a, a these are euphemisms that we use. You know, we use the word healthcare. We're talking about a procedure that ends an innocent human life, and we're calling it healthcare. That's like calling rape lovemaking. And this know. is why it's such a, a human issue because I right. see what you're saying. Abortion is healthcare, the way that rape is lovemaking. I mean, guys, that is legitimately, I'm not being hyperbolic here. That is legitimate, legitimately, considering the context, one of the greatest quotes I've ever heard. Okay. And it's so, so, so true. The only thing I wish he did is I wish he didn't say it again. It's kind of like when people say a joke and no one really laughs, they say it again, assuming that everybody wasn't listening. It's like, I think he should have just left it the first time, but I understand why he said it again. But abortion is healthcare the way that rape is lovemaking. That is absolutely true. Because when people hold up these signs and wear the t-shirts that say abortion is healthcare, it's like, what are you talking about? Like, how is it healthy to destroy a human life? Same thing that you could say about, you know, these hospitals, which we'll talk about here in a second, that are chopping off healthy breast tissue and body parts from children and calling it healthcare so that they can somehow have a better trans identity. Okay. But one thing to notice towards the end of this little clip is the entire tone of the conversation shifts virtually at this moment. Again, go, go watch the entire interview. The entire tone of this particular segment shifts at that moment. You could even hear it in Joe's voice, right? And so this, you know, affects as we get into the last clip here, which we'll go ahead and get into now. Life is valuable. Like, yes. And people have almost were the victims of abortion and they weren't. 
they they went on to become these amazing people and we right. would have lost them sometimes it's a failed abortion like there's people who have su survived like a saline abortion and they ha and they're Jesus. damaged as a result of it but they but they lived and now they're born they usually go on ironically enough to become pro-life uh activists oh well that's crazy yeah that's wild but it makes sense i mean that's what made you yeah wouldn't you be a pro-life activist probably would be so did you catch that? There was something very, very subtle there. It wasn't even in my notes. It was whenever I was listening back to it just now. Joe Rogan said victims of abortion. What does he mean by that? That would have been a great time for Seth Dillon to ask him, like, hey, what did you mean by victims of abortion? If abortion is health care, how can there be a victim? Because like, if, if I were to roll my ankle and go into the doctor and they treat me for this rolled ankle, who's the victim exactly? Me? Them? I'm not a victim of health care. I'm a beneficiary. Of healthcare. So I would have asked him, you know, what do you mean by victims of abortion? Because again, you know, in a typical abortion scenario, two people walk into the doctor's office, the woman and her baby, and only one of them walks out. So what victim are you talking about? But one thing that Dylan gets him to do is he gets Joe to admit that life is valuable. And I say that like he was withholding, but obviously Joe, that, Joe knows that human life is valuable because he values his own life. I assume he values the life of his wife and his daughters. But you get him to admit it in this discussion about abortion, that's not an insignificant thing. But I do think that this was also a missed opportunity for Dylan to ask Joe Rogan, why is life valuable? Why? Why should it be protected? And, you know, when do you, Joe Rogan, think it's worthy of our protection as a society? Because that's what the laws of the land are for for the protection and flourishing of its people inside of its populace, right? And again, I, I thought, you know, he did a, an amazing job here overall, and there are a lot of takeaways, but I love at the end of this clip uh, that it ends with Joe Rogan agreeing that you would 100% end up as a pro-life advocate, advocate if you were saved from abortion. And again, just his language like, it's just so interesting. I think there's some internal struggle here, but I want to go into my takeaways from this clip. So I have six takeaways, uh, mainly from this clip. Here's the first one. It's amazing how a conversation about a controversial topic can go if you keep your cool. So when I teach about the abortion subject, and I, I'll do so, you know, at Faith Bible Church in Edmond on September the 18th, you guys should come out. The first person to lose their cool loses. The first person to raise their voice loses. Because you just need to sit on the fact, like if you think your position is correct, you shouldn't have to yell it to convince people to come to your side, which comes into the next takeaway, which is it's amazing how good the pro-life side of the argument is if you don't let your own personality or immaturity get in the way. Because guys, I've been the worst about this over the years. When I would get into a debate with somebody, whether in person or on social media, which I, I completely don't do anymore, like I would get so fired up. Like from, from jump, I'd go from zero to a hundred super fast and just jump into the argument would be offensive and, you know, just try to pull them over. And it was like, I was right in a lot of those scenarios, but you would never know it by looking at it. Or even if you knew it intellectually that I was right, you'd be like, God, Kyle was just really acting like a jerk during that entire situation. It's like, yeah, yeah, I get it. But the pro-life side is the moral side. Protecting the most innocent humans on this planet, which are humans that are inside their mother's wombs is the right position. People on the left love to talk about, oh, you want to be on the right side of history. It's like, how could you be more so on the right side of history than protecting the unborn? 
They don't see it that way, but they should, and hopefully they do someday. We should all certainly be praying for that. And the next takeaway I have here is that Joe Rogan clearly hasn't talked to many people that are genuinely pro-life. Because there are a lot of people that are squishy pro-life, and I've talked about that on the show. I try to disabuse you a lot of the notions that would lead you to believe that there are certain positions and times and scenarios where it's okay to murder a, a you know baby in the womb. And I've again, I've disabused you guys of all those different things. But you can just tell in how Joe Rogan is talking to Dylan that he just he doesn't really interact with pro-life people. It doesn't really happen very often. Which leads to my next point, which is that Joe Rogan clearly has not fully thought through his views on the abortion issue. Because again, if you go to the exception of the exception of the exception scenario of rape or incest right from the beginning, it shows that you're a sloganeerer, right? That you, you can see a slogan and then put that into your mental Rolodex and pull it out when you feel like you need it. That's where he began. You don't need to begin there if you have a genuine understanding of your position. Now, there is not really a tenable position on the pro-abortion side of things. There just isn't. But you can just tell by the way he's talking about the issue that he really hasn't thought it through. Another takeaway here, uh, we'll do a couple more and then we'll move on. I think on the abortion issue, you know, as as has already happened with many other issues, that Joe's opinion can be swayed to the pro-life side, okay? I think it can be, but we'll just kind of have to see if it's actually going to be that way because Joe Rogan is a guy that describes himself as highly liberal. I'm liberal in just about everything. And yet he didn't want to stay in the liberal bastion that is California. He moved to Texas. Why? Because of liberal policies in the state of California, which led to rampant homelessness, out of control taxation, uh, the COVID lockdowns, all these different things. Then he moves to Texas, a a red state, and he moves to a, a deep blue dot in a red state. But he all of a sudden goes there and he's enjoying all the things that were the opposite of what he left. And again, he's a purported liberal. But again, this guy is, you know, he wants to legalize all drugs. He's, he's pretty good with open borders and immigration, but then he's also like pro gun and pro hunting and all these different things. So he's kind of this mixed bag. And so I think part of that mixed bag could be this issue because he very easily mentioned in this whole thing that, you know, basically there are victims of abortion and it's not the woman getting the abortion because her body is just the setting for the abortion. The abortion only takes place to the baby that's inside of her. It's not the woman's, you know, body parts that are being ripped to pieces. It's the babies, right? And he also admitted that life was valuable. And you could see, again, Seth Dillon being very calm and almost like slowly pulling him towards the pro-life side of this particular argument. I thought it was fantastic. But the last thing here on this, this whole deal is that we must all, and I, mean, I literally mean all of us, we must stand ready to give a sound, measured, God-honoring apologetic for the pro-life viewpoint if put in a similar situation. Now, what I mean by similar situation is not on a podcast show in Austin, Texas, that is going to be heard by tens of millions of people. Because literally there are only a handful of human beings that will ever be in that situation. The situation that I'm talking about that's similar is whenever you are eyeball to eyeball with somebody that is pro-abortion or somebody that is somewhere between the extreme left of the pro-abortion side and the extreme right of the pro-life side, which is where I'm at, right? Abortion should not be legal for any reason whatsoever, okay? If you have somebody that's in between those two extremes and you hold to a significant pro-life position, You've got to be able to give an apologetic for that. You've got to be ready to give your arguments. Now, 
That doesn't necessarily mean that you have the personality to go out and seek those arguments. Just walk up to random strangers on the street and start up that conversation. But perhaps that is you, right? But if you're not ready with these arguments, then when you get in that position, you will fall to the level of your preparedness. We talk about that all the time with, you know, concealed carry people or people that fight or, uh, you know, jujitsu or whatever. Like when you're in that kinetic situation where you need to defend yourself or your loved ones, you're going to fall to the level of your training. You're not all of a sudden going to rise to the occasion because you bench press once a week, right? So guys, I'm going to just repeat that point and then we'll move on. We must all stand ready to give a sound, measured, God-honoring apologetic for the pro-life viewpoint if put in a similar situation. All right, guys, let's dig into the quick hitter segment. Here's the first one. I'm excited and not excited about this one as well, but I thought about making this the entire, you know, thing that I would talk about at the beginning of the show, but then the Joe Rogan stuff came up and I didn't want this to linger any longer. I've been sitting on this one for a few weeks, but the university of central Oklahoma employs a compelled speech mandate concerning student pronouns. Okay. So for those of you that are not aware, if you've not been listening to this uh, podcast for any length of time, I am a graduate of the university of central Oklahoma. Okay. So that is the third largest university in the state of Oklahoma. Uh, whenever I went there, there were about 17,000 students. I think they're around, you know, 15, five or something like that right now. So a very large public institution here in the state of Oklahoma. I loved my time while I was there. I was like Mr. UCO, right? Like I was synonymous with school spirit and support for the university. And no, we don't wear, you know, other schools, you know, shirts when we're on campus here because we're brought Broncos and blah, blah, like all that. That's the guy that I was. Even after graduation, I would constantly get pulled back to campus to do stuff with the athletic department or do stuff uh, with the communication department, which is where I got my degree from, or the MBA program, which I was on the board there, or the alumni association, which I was on the board with them as well. But then whenever they got a new president, and so the new president is named Patty Newhold Ravikumar. Uh, I was familiar with Patty. She was just Patty Newhold at the time, um, whenever she was one of the people working on campus. But then she was hand-selected to be the president of the university, okay? And so something you need to know about her, she's young, she's smart, but she's also a lesbian. So she checks some intersectional boxes, a woman and a lesbian. Uh, so hence the last name, Newhold Ravikumar, like uh, her, her uh, wife is uh, someone named Ravikumar. But she was placed into power. And I have it on good authority that this lady was not in the final uh, running for the, the title of being president of the university, but that she was selected over all the finalists that were chosen by this en entire big committee, but she was selected to become the president of the University of Central Oklahoma. Now, my ideas as to why that is having not been in the room for these discussions is because it was the first female president of the United or of, of the University of Central Oklahoma. She could also check the other intersectional box box of being LGBTQ plus, you know, because she's a lesbian that that was going to be a big boon for the campus. And she was young, so she can be the president for the next 30 years. But for me, it's like, look, I love UCO. I have some misgivings about what she may do, but I don't know her well enough personally to know which direction she's going to push the university in. So while I was on the MBA program board, while I was on the alumni association board, I'm like, okay, I'm just going to chill and watch and see what happens. But then there have been a lot of things that have been not a leftward lurch for the University of Central Oklahoma, but a sprint towards the left of all these different social issues. So a, a member of the UCO faculty staff reached out to me uh, probably four or five weeks ago now and said, hey, have you heard about the UCO's chosen names and pronouns policy? And I immediately rolled my eyes and I was like, ugh. I knew there was a reason why I left all the boards and basically uh, have distanced myself from the university is because of crap like this. But then this individual sent me the document itself. 
Okay. So I'm going to put the document, uh, if I can figure out how to put a PDF in the show notes or something like that, I'll make sure you guys have access to the entire document, but this is the university of central Oklahoma chosen names and pronouns document. So it's a couple of pages long, but I'm just going to look at a couple of sections. So if you are somewhere safe where you can look at the PDF, as I go through it, you can go ahead and pull that up, but I'm going to get into it here. So the first thing is the introduction. So here it is. The University of Central Oklahoma affirms the right of students and employees to be addressed and be known by the given first names and the pronouns that they choose to express their identity. So obviously the given first names part, you're like, yeah, like, you know, my son's name is James, but if at some point he wants to go by Jim or Jimmy, okay, well that's, you know, a chosen first name. Like I'm assuming we're going to continue calling Elijah Squish inside this house, but he's probably not going to be going to be called that when he's a senior in high school. He'll probably go by Eli or Elijah at that point, you would think, right? But then it's the pronoun side, okay? And the pronouns that they choose to express their identity. So no mention of the pronouns that are appropriate concerning their biology, but the ones that they choose. So that's the introduction. So part two, it's called scope. So it's just one sentence here. This policy is intended to apply to all university databases and electronic records and interfaces and or on and after the effective date of this policy. Okay. So that's kind of the IT side of this. So there's the you know diversity department and then there's the IT side. So I'm going to skip over section three and go to section four. And this is the policy statement. So this is where the rubber really starts to meet the road. The University of Central Oklahoma, UCO, affirms the right of students and employees to be addressed and to be known by the given first names and the pronouns that they choose to express their identity. UCO upholds this right by providing both students and employees with the opportunity to designate their chosen given first name and pronouns through an online self-service option accessible to all students and employees. Chosen names and pronouns as designated through this online self-service option will appear in all publicly accessible and in most restricted fields in the university's databases and systems so that systems users will see displayed the students or employees chosen name and pronouns. It is not necessary for students or employees to change their names legally in order to designate a different chosen name or pronoun to display within these systems. So the rest of it, for this next section, I don't really care about it, but isn't that interesting there at the end there? It is not necessary for students or employees to change their names legally in order to designate a different chosen name or pronouns to display within these systems. So the name thing, obviously, like if you want to change your name, but you haven't really got it on your license yet, like I understand that. But the pronoun thing is interesting because currently in the state of Oklahoma, there's not a third option on your driver's license. It's male or female. X is not an option. Unknown is not an an option. Like LMNOP is not an option. Okay. So it's interesting that they worded it that way. I'm sure they thought it was subtle, but it was like a loud, you know, banging drum for me. So we're going to skip down a little bit to a section called the following restrictions apply to the designation of chosen given first names and pronouns. So let me read this here. Students may designate newly chosen names and or pronouns at their discretion, but newly chosen names and or pronouns chosen after the beginning of the semester may not be reflected or printed on class roll sheets and other documents prepared by instructors at the beginning of the semester. Okay. And this is very, very important. This is probably the most important part right here. In these cases, students should notify their instructors that they have designated newly chosen name and or pronouns that were not included on beginning of the semester class rosters and course sites. Okay. Now, The reason why that's probably the most important section is because what if the professor refuses? So let's take a scenario. Let's say in the middle of semester. So I walked in as Kyle, you know, he, him pronouns. 
But in the middle of the semester, which is not going to be reflected in the databases or in the role, I say, I'm Carla. And my pronouns are now her, uh, hers or whatever. She, her, whatever. What if the professor refuses to call me Carla? Or if they say, hey, I don't really kind of like how I am. I don't care what you say your name is. I'll call you by, you know, your chosen given name that you, that you want to be called by. But I'm not going to say something that is untrue, like referring to a he as a her. Why is that missing? There's something missing in here. What if they refuse to do so? So I'm going to get into the last section here and then we'll get into some more commentary. So this is uh, the last section before uh, the technical standard, which I'm going to ignore because that's just basically IT. Students and employees may select pronouns from the list provided in the online self-service option described above. Now, I immediately thought when I read that sentence, guys, well, there's an ever-expanding list of pronouns. So what if theirs aren't listed? Well, they address that immediately. Students and employees who wish to select pronouns that are not available through the online self-service option may request that additional pronouns be added to the list of available options. To make a request of this sort, the student or employee should contact the university's Office of Inclusive Community. Yes, that is a real office, and that is inclusivecommunity at uco.edu. The Office of Inclusive Community, inclusivecommunity at uco.edu. So they solve it there. So that's interesting that that you look through all this, but let's be clear about what this is, what this policy is. It's compelled speech. Now, if you're familiar with that phraseology, compelled speech, it probably goes back to before you knew the name of a guy named Jordan Peterson. So this was Bill C-16 in Canada, where there was going to be a compelled speech mandate around pronouns. And he was very, very open and loud and bombastic about his uh, you know, basically hating that idea, his opposition to that idea. And it wasn't because he wanted to be rude. It wasn't because he, he loves misgendering or dead naming people. It was because he understands all the totalitarian regimes that almost ended the world in the 20th century, right? He understands Stalin's Russia or Soviet Union. He understands, you know, Hitler's Germany. He understands Pol Pot's Cambodia. He understands Mao's China. He understands those because he spent hundreds and hundreds of hours reading, thinking about, and studying those particular things. And a lot of the, of, of the things that started at the beginning of those regimes was compelling speech and or acceptable speech versus unacceptable speech. That's what this policy is. It, it seems to be couched in generalized language. And if you're not really astute enough to read this and re, be able to read between the lines, you're gonna be like, ah, oh, you know, it just kind of is what it is. Hey, it's 2022. So people got different pronouns. Like, what's the big deal? They're telling you what words you're not allowed to say. So again, I come in, I tell you, my name is Carla and I'm she, her now. And I'm saying, and this policy is saying, you have to do that now. That when you're using a pronoun to describe me, it has to not align with the truth. The truth does not matter as much as my feelings and my preferences. That is what this is. And also, let's be clear about this. The University of Central Oklahoma, my alma mater, purposefully put out this policy without addressing what the consequences would be for any faculty staff that decide to not go along with this charade. Why? Why did they leave out the potential consequences? Because it's not as if there won't be consequences, but where is the section of this, this document that says, if any faculty staff member refuses to abide by someone's chosen name or pronouns, 
here's what they can expect. It's because they're going to just make it up on the spot. They're going to plan to make an example out of somebody and hope that person's not very litigious, right? This is nefarious. It really is. Because with any policy prescription that is demanding that something go down with people that have autonomy to, to agree with that or abide by that or not, you have to give them an idea as to what the consequences will be if they don't go along with that. Now, it's my understanding that there have been different colleges uh, within the university uh, that have gotten together to further kind of like pre-year discussions about what's going to happen for this semester and here's some policy changes and here's some whatever and so whatever. And I do have some, some knowledge of how one of those went. They basically started with the DEI people, the diversity, equity, and inclusion people that they kind of kicked off these meetings. And I know that there were people that kind of raised their hands and said, Hey, what about this policy? Like, you know, what are we going to do? Like, uh, you know, what if somebody changes, decides they want to change their pronouns multiple times throughout the semester and like, like all I'm trying to do is like teach them how to do whatever it is I'm you know, being paid to teach them how to do. And now I'm having to wor- worry about names and pronouns and all this other stuff. And, you know, I don't know that a lot of movement has been made on that, but for one particular uh, person in, in general, or I guess for one particular person in particular, um, I gave them some advice on what they should do. Okay. For the predicament that they find themselves in. So this particular person did not get a great answer from the person that runs their department as to what would happen if they themselves decided that they weren't going to abide by this. So what I encourage this person to do is to get a sit down meeting with that person and, and, or get an email as you know, chained together going with that department head to get a defined exact reasoning and understanding of what would happen if they decided not to comply. Right. And so if, if they want to just get it, you know, on an email, so they have it in writing, or if they want to record the conversation, once they go in there, like whatever I, they, I encouraged him to do that. But, but then beyond that, I encouraged this person to also go to that person's boss. So you got the department head, go to the department head's boss and get confirmation again, start the conversation over from the beginning. Hey, this was, you know, uh, the, the director of the department, this was their understanding, but now for you, what is your understanding of this? And literally take that conversation all the way up to the president's office and say, if I, or if anyone else on campus decides that they don't want to do this because they believe in truth and they believe that this pronoun stuff is nonsense, what are you going to do? And you need to get everybody on the record answering that question. Okay. So for this individual or any other individual that could ever possibly be in this situation, that is my advice to you. Get them on the record. And make sure you have it recorded, whether the audio or in writing. So my big takeaway on this story is that this can and will happen at a university near you. And also for you parents out there, make sure that you keep track of the universities that don't fold to the pressure of the LGBTQ revolution. So there are going to be some conservative holdouts. So think of a a Hillsdale College, which is like, you know, an old school conservative university. They're going to continue to expand and get even bigger over the years as long as they can continue withstanding, you know, what's coming at them. And part of the thing and the reason why a university like that's able to do that is because they take no funding from the federal government, right? It's an interesting thing. But guys, this is going to happen. You know, a lot of you are complaining about it happening at your K through 12 schools. Yeah, I get it. The same thing is going to happen within the college programs, which is another reason why I tell all you guys. You really need to have conversations about this with your children, because if you're going to be on the hook for potentially hundreds of thousands of dollars to send your kid to a liberal indoctrination camp, otherwise known as a state university, like, don't you want to have some say in that? 
Like that, that's not a, that's not a good idea. You're going to incur all this debt and, or your child's going to incur all this debt. And especially if they get some useless degree that they're not going to use for their next job, have a conversation to them about going into a trade or literally taking a year off to figure out what they want to do, going and getting a job first, you know, working and trying to see if they can find something that they like to do, as opposed to just like, you know, just brain dead, go to a university. Well, what's your major? I have no idea. I don't have to declare one until I'm a junior party. Like, sorry, like that's not a great idea for most people. So for you, if you're going to be a well-meaning, you know, Christian leader of a parent as a father, for most of you listening to this, you've really got to take a lot of these things into account because this isn't nothing. And again, I've got a two-year-old and a five-month-old. So I've got a lot of years to, to really look at the landscape. For some of you, you got kids that are knocking on the door or going to university somewhere. So got to keep all this in mind. All right, next quick hitter here. Boston Children's Hospital takes heat for castrating and mutilating children. So this is according to The Federalist. Boston Children's Hospital is promoting the mutilization of healthy kids who claim to be transgender via gender-affirming hysterectomies, sterilization, and chemical castration, despite the irreversible mental and physical damage those procedures cause. For years now, BCH has mutilated children's sexual organs under the guise of inclusive reproductive health care for people of all gender identities and anatomies. This includes prescribing hormones that suppress menstruation in underage girls and block the increase of testosterone in minor boys, phalloplasties, and mid metodioplasties for 18-year-old girls who want penises, vaginoplasties for 17-year-old boys who want vaginas, chest reconstruction and breast augmentation for children as young as 15, and even medically unnecessary hysterectomies for girls whom the hospital deems eligible for surgery. Just this week, this was actually last week, BCH scrubbed a video titled, What Happens During a Gender-Affirming Hysterectomy? After facing backlash for promoting the surgery for minors who can't consent and do not have the mental capacity to make such a life-altering decision. An archived version of the footage shows Dr. Francis Grimstad, an obstetrician gynecologist, describing the process of rendering teen women infertile by removing key female reproductive organs in the name of affirmation. A gender-affirming hysterectomy is very similar to most hysterectomies that occur, Grimstad happily explains. A hysterectomy itself is the removal of the uterus, the cervix, which is the opening of the uterus, and the fallopian tubes, which are attached to the sides of the uterus. Okay, so there's more there. I'm sure a lot of you guys, if you follow most people in the conservative space, they've really been talking a lot about this. This actually happened a couple of weeks ago. I think I said it happened a week ago. But I think it's very interesting kind of watching how people have reacted to the story, how the right, the political right is reporting the story versus how the left is. So when I was looking at this, obviously, you know, the Federalist is very conservative. So obviously the stuff that I just read was very tinged in that idea. And you could even just say tinged with the idea of truth, but how the right is handling this story is they are rightfully, no, no pun intended, they're aghast and worried about this hospital, this, this huge, like top tier hospital going out of their way to normal, normalize the mutilation and chemical castration of children. But the left, on the other hand, they're worried about all the quote unquote violent threats coming their way and coming the hospital's way after right wing people online began targeting them. Okay. Now here's the thing about that. So we're getting all these reports of all these people, you making violent threats towards the hospital or anything like that. Can someone show me a receipt? Can you show me the DM? Can, can you post the email or the voicemail that was left with the violent threat on it? Because I'm just about tired of everyone in the general public, just taking as, as truth, taking it as gospel that when people say I've been getting death threats, that they're actually getting them. Okay. 
Now, I'm I'm in no way, shape, or form saying that death threats are a good thing. If you disagree with what Boston Children's Hospital is doing and you're calling them saying I'm in and threatening to kill their staff, that's a really, really horrific thing to do. That's a really, really stupid thing to do. But a good thing to do might be to go outside their facility and hold up a sign that says, please stop castrating children. Like it's you're well within your rights to call them, to email them, to show up and to say, hey, I'm really concerned about what you guys are doing. Can you stop it? There's no threat there. It's not stop it or else, right? Right? It's just don't do this anymore. Like you can't castrate these children. So I'm very uh, happy that there are a lot of conservative commentators that have taken up the mantle on this. Matt Walsh of the Daily Wire, obviously on the heels of what is a woman. He's really going out of his way on this one. And he's getting a lot of support from people to where it's like, we can't be silent on this issue anymore. We can't know that there are children's hospitals in the United States that are getting funding from the federal government that are literally destroying the lives of children. Before we have any idea, right, you know, according to data as to what the long-term effects are going to be. Now, anyone with a functioning brain would know what the long-term effects are because suicidality for people that go through a quote-unquote full transition is just as high, if not higher, after they've gone through the transition as was before. So as a cohort of the population, people that have gender dysphoria have a much higher rate of suicide or at least trying for suicide. But then people that go through all the hormones and all the surgery and all those things, they still commit suicides at a high, high, high rate. Why? Because there is a meaning shaped hole in their life that they think if they get a fake penis sewed on top of their vagina, it's somehow going to fix it. That if their breasts are bothering them as a 14-year-old girl that if they get those chopped off, that that's somehow going to make them whole. It is a God-shaped hole inside these people in their finding their meaning and how they present themselves in terms of their gender identity. So the big takeaway on this one is the left cannot handle when you simply point to what they're doing or saying and critique it. They simply cannot fathom why you aren't giving them your full-throated support. Pick an issue, whether it's transgenderism with kids, anything that comes out of the array of the LGBTQ plus issues on abortion, on, on healthcare, on taxation, on immigration. They have no idea why you can't just say, yeah, I agree with you. You're so smart and awesome. Thank you for being my handler. They don't get it. It's just astonishing to me that they can't handle it. They become such whiny, crying, little measly, mealy mouth babies when you critique what they're doing. And when all you're doing is holding up a platter with what they're doing on it and saying, I don't like this. Because typically, not all of them, typically people on the right aren't going to lie about what you've said or what you're doing. They, they just don't have that in them because they typically want truth to be known. This is typical, not across the board, but this is typical. And so when somebody wants truth to be known and they just show an accurate depiction within context of what you think and what you're doing, and you're like, oh, that's crazy. It's like, here, let me distract you with my reaction to your reaction, as opposed to us having to reckon with the fact that you're cutting off the penises of boys and removing the sexual organs of girls, castrating them giving them chemicals that we used to give to rapists and pedophiles to castrate them. We're giving them to children that can't consent to a sexual relationship, but can somehow consent to their sexual organs being removed or fake ones being added to them. So as this continues to move forward, I will continue to bring this to you. I will continue to report on it. 
And if there are things that you can do to fight against this, and I don't mean fight with your fists or with Molotov cocktails or bricks through windows, I mean fight this ideology to try to get this to stop, you absolutely should do so. All right, next quick hitter here. Minneapolis Public Schools targets white teachers for termination. So this is according to Daily Caller. A contract between a Minneapolis public school district and teachers unions calls for white teachers to be fired before minority teachers, according to the contract obtained by the Daily Caller. On March the 25th, the Minneapolis Federation of Teachers and the Minneapolis Public Schools struck a deal to end a 14-day union strike. The deal included a bargaining agreement for various proposals, including one that fires educators based on their race, according to Alpha News. Starting with the spring 2023 budget tie-out cycle, if accessing a teacher, that's firing, a teacher who is a member of a population underrepresented among licensed teachers in the site, the district shall access the latest or they shall access the next least senior teacher who is not a member of an underrepresented population. The contract reads minority teachers may also be exempted from district wide layoffs outside seniority order and given priority reinstatement. According to the contract, the contract attempts to protect teachers at 15 racially isolated schools from layoffs. These schools house the greatest concentration of poverty within the district. The race-based firing process is intended to make up for past discrimination by the district disproportionately impacting the hiring of underrepresented teachers in the district as compared to the relevant labor market and the community. This disparity resulted in a lack of diversity of teachers, according to the contract. So a few random thoughts here. The first thought is that this is obviously mega racist. If you're hiring or firing based on race, that is super duper racist, right? So you don't have to go back to uh, the civil rights uh, era into all the agreements that happened therein with our federal government to realize, yeah, this is pretty stinking racist, but racism apparently is 100% okay. As long as it's targeted at white people. And again, here I am as a Christian white straight, you know, cisgendered male. So I'm like the worst version of Satan walking the earth and I have red hair, so I have no soul. So it's the worst thing possible, but racism should not happen to any race for any reason whatsoever. And here's the other thing. Other school districts in this country will use this, what we're seeing right now in Minneapolis, Minnesota, here in the United States, as a model for their own policies in their school district. This is obviously what's going to come next. So they're not the first school district to do some nonsense like this, but they're not going to be the last. And they're just basically showing you, here's how you can get it done. Here's how you can make it happen. Now, this also gets into a point. Someone, anyone, feel free to email me, info at undaunted.life. Tell me how teachers unions are making anything better. And I mean like anything. Because per capita, per student, we give more funding to education in this country per student than most of the rest of the world does. And yet our educational outcomes are paltry compared to countries all over the planet, whether it's reading, writing, mathematics, science, engineering, anything else. We suck at all those things. And all we get told by these teacher unions is we need more money. Oh, do we? To the people, you real heroes that were advocating that we don't need to have children in school for two years so that you could teach Zoom school in your underwear. Sorry. Again, I'm not going to get off on another tangent about teachers, but it's like they're not a homogenous group of heroes and teachers unions are not here for the public health of the students' education. They're simply not. They are a political group that overwhelmingly, we're talking like 90, 95% votes one way with Democrats. 
that always want more funding for something that sucks, which is our education system here in this country. So how are these teachers unions helping? Seriously, if I'm ignorant on this issue, I want to know. But my big takeaway on this one is racism today does not fix racism from yesterday, which is duh to anybody that knows anything about words and how they're supposed to hit your brain and make sense. You can't do something that's racist today to take care of something that's racist that happened back in the day, even if it's you. So me doing something racist today doesn't fix racism that happened yesterday, but it certainly doesn't fix, fix racism that happened decades and decades ago to people that weren't even related to you. Okay. So for Christians, I want to remind you about something from James two. Okay. So the sin of partiality. So let's talk about James two. I'm going to read verses one through 13 here. My brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen that you, that who, that those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag into the court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails to, in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Okay? So that is a good word. For any of you out there, Christians that maybe have a little bit of racial animus in your heart, maybe it comes from your upbringing, comes from your background, you look at people in certain ways, if they look a certain way, you treat people differently and act differently around people. What we're hearing here from the half-brother of Jesus is that that is the sin of partiality, that you should not do that with individuals. And that's also a good explanation of the gospel there that, hey, there's total depravity here, right? If you break any law, which all of us break tons of laws every single day, God's laws, that that's not a good thing and that you are going to be judged by the law of the transgressors, and you need a way out of that, hence the gospel, the blood of Christ. But again, this kind of goes back to, uh, you know, Thomas Sowell book, you know, talking about the the quest for cosmic justice. On this planet, if you don't have a Judeo-Christian ethic, and you don't think that at some point every tear that's ever been shed will be picked back up, that every horrible thing that's ever been done will be as blotted out as if it never happened. If you don't believe that, then you demand that there be justice on this planet. And you get that through reparations. You get that by being racist towards people today. And you pretend as if that's going to affect racism that was enacted decades, if not centuries behind that time period. Okay. But again, guys, racism today does not fix racism from yesterday. We must avoid the sin of partiality. 
All right, next quick hitter here. Flash mobs in California trade in dancing for looting because every time I hear flash mob, I think people are going to just start dancing in the food court at the mall, but apparently not anymore. So this is according to NBC Los Angeles. Video from security cameras inside a 7-Eleven captured a chaotic scene when a crowd of people ransacked the store during a street takeover in Los Angeles's Harbor Gateway area. The large crowd gathered for the street takeover on Monday night in the Harbor Gateway area swarmed the store at the corner of Figueroa Street and El Segundo Boulevard in a frenzy of looting and vandalism. Security camera video showed the large crowd gathering outside the store inside the situation quickly turned into mayhem when dozens of people emptied shelves threw snacks and beverages and left the merchandise and left with merchandise rather police described the scene as flash mob looting at least two people jumped over the front counter and threw items and uh, two others in the crowd a store employee decisively outnumbered hid in the back room of the store fearing for his life police said the suspects are facing multiple charges to include grand theft, looting, and vandalism, the LAPD said in a statement. We are seeking the public's help in identifying persons observed in the video committing these acts. No arrests were reported early Thursday. This was Thursday of last week. So guys, you know, in the video, if you watch these videos, which you'll be able to check it out in the show notes, these people look like animals. Like this looks like some some crazy like feeding frenzy thing. Like it just they don't even look like people. It's just nonsense. I mean, people of all shapes and sizes and colors just acting in an absolute fool inside of this 7-Eleven. But here's the thing, the LAPD, and I've, I've read some of their responses to this, they're pretending to be outraged about this, but we all know that they're not going to do anything about it. And you know why? Because even if they did, the people that they would arrest would likely never go to jail for it. Because you have DAs in this community that, you know, they've bought in this idea that, you know, our prisons are overflowing with people that just were accidentally doing crimes and now they're serving a 20 year sentence, which is just not the case in almost every single one of these scenarios. But they know like why, if you're an LAPD officer, why would you have, even if you came upon this situation, are you going to walk in there and do anything about that situation? No, because you know, potentially your entire life is on the line because other people pointed this out, but let's say you go in there and you try to stop this. And in the process of doing so, you have to rub up, rough up somebody in order to arrest them and to subdue them. But that person happens to be part of a protected class. Maybe it's a black man or maybe it's an LGBTQ person or some non-binary widget or something like that that you're arresting. Now, all of a sudden, you could be brought up on, on charges or something like that, or you could lose your livelihood or get doxxed by people on Twitter or something like that just for doing your job. So most of these people are going to be like, eh, they're just going to turn a blind eye to it. So my big takeaway from this one is criminals will continue to perform criminal acts if they do not believe they're going to be punished because punishment is a deterrent. I keep hearing that, you know, ah, you know, uh, the death penalty is not a deterrent. We should get rid of it. Oh, these, these long, you know, mandatory sentences are not a deterrent. We should get rid of it. But then they cite no data whatsoever to prove that because it's a non-falsifiable claim. Like what I was talking about with Joe Biden, they're like, oh, you know, good thing he's got, you know, a very uh, mild case of the C word. Uh, You know, good thing he got four of these V words. It's like, uh, well, that's not falsifiable. You can't falsify that. You can't go back in time and not give him the, the V words for the C word and then compare it to where he is today. Like you can't do that. Same thing here. You're saying these things aren't a deterrent, but we can't go back in time and say that and say that there would be more or less of a particular crime. But there was something in a debate that I did recently when I was talking about gun violence and different things like that, which I didn't really get to get into, but I gathered some scriptures about stiff penal sanctions. Okay. So I'm not going to be able to get the context of all these verses, but let me read these here to you. Ecclesiastes 8.11, because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. 
Then we have Proverbs 28.5. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. And then, you know, one chapter later, Proverbs 29.4. By justice, a king builds up the land, but he who exacts gifts tears it down. And then we have Hebrews 2.2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Okay, but I really want to focus on the Ecclesiastes 8.11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. I think this applies with a lot of things. So if you think about it, I brought up the death penalty. So you have somebody, they are clearly guilty of this particular crime. Uh, you give them the, the processes to appeal just in case there was an issue with that initial trial. But then we have these people that will sit on death row for decades and decades living on the, the government dime, the taxpayer dime. And then they get there uh, at the very last minute, the governor will commute their sentence in a lot of these cases. And now they're going to be living for decades and decades and decades more, even though the just penalty for their actions was a speedy death. But we don't do that anymore. So I would argue that if somebody were to commit a murder and they're arrested for that, they get a quick trial, right? Where it proves their guilt or innocence. They get one, uh, they get one chance to go and do another trial. They get, they get one time to do that. And then afterwards they need to be put to death immediately. And that's not to say we shouldn't share the gospel with these people. Cause I can already hear people saying that, well, what do you mean? You need to give them more time to accept Christ. Even though, you know, Calvinists wouldn't even say that. It's like, ah, they're either elect or they're not. So good luck. Like the, but beyond that, it's like, why do we, we have these processes where it's like they get to go back to court and back to court and back to court and nothing changes. And then they stay on death row for years and years and years longer. And then they just get commuted anyway. Like if you have stiffer penal sanctions, again, I know death penalty is kind of in its entire uh, different thing, but if these people that are doing felonious acts or something like that, if they are stiffly penalized for these things, that will have an effect on people that know them, knuckleheads that are around them, guys that are in the gang with them or doing the organized crime with them, right? It's a big deal. So again, we can't expect for crimes to start going down in all these typically blue cities across the country unless we can get the DAs out of there that aren't punishing them. It seems pretty simple from my view. All right, last quick hitter here. Serena Williams thinks it's unfair that she's a woman. Okay, so Serena Williams is genuinely one of the greatest sports success stories that we've ever seen in mainstream sports. So obviously you should know the story like her and her sister Venus, uh, you know, they're from Compton and, you know, trying to get into a sport that was dominated by people that didn't look like them. Tennis was very, very rough. But Serena Williams especially literally made it and has turned herself into a mega millionaire, an inter international superstar because of how gifted from God she is, how hard she worked, how resilient she was, and how well she performed under pressure. I mean, let's just, let's just run the stats here. So this is all women's tennis, obviously. 23 singles Grand Slam titles, 14 doubles Grand Slam titles, two mixed doubles Grand Slam titles, one Olympic gold medal in singles, three Olympic gold medals in doubles, and her career earnings just from the, uh, the Women's uh, Tennis Association, the WTA, $94,588,910. That's just from playing tennis, okay? That doesn't get into the Gatorade sponsorships. That doesn't get into Nike. It doesn't get into anything else. Just from WTA, almost $95 million, okay? So she is easily and without debate the greatest of all time women's tennis player. Now, 
You can go ahead and miss me with all this goat of tennis overall nonsense. I literally saw that. I, I forget where I was, but you know, I was thinking it was at lunch. And in the background, they were debating on ESPN, of course, on ESPN, which is the MSNBC of sports. They were debating whether or not she was the goat of tennis just overall, right? Even though she admitted before that if she had to play against men, that she would get destroyed because in practice, she would constantly get absolutely destroyed in straight sets to kids that were college tennis players, male tennis players that weren't even that good, not highly ranked, not highly touted. No one in the, the tennis world even knows their name and she would get destroyed by them. Okay. So we need to put that to the side, but apparently even after all that, all that money, you know, all the titles, all the awards, all the accolades, you might be shocked to find out that Serena Williams is in fact a victim. So let's go to this by the Daily Wire. Superstar Serena Williams announced her retirement from tennis and said that nothing is a sacrifice for her as she explained that she's choosing building her family rather than her tennis resume. In a lengthy article written by the 40-year-old tennis superstar for Vogue, Serena talked about how much she will miss the part of her that played tennis, but that she's come to a moment in her life when she wants to grow her family and doesn't want to be pregnant again as an athlete. Williams and husband Alexis Ohanian, don't, don't now say that, I'm sorry, share a daughter, Alexis Olympia, who turns five this month. Now, this is a quote from her, and this is where everybody's kind of, you know, kind of getting all these, these thoughts and ideas on what she's saying. So believe me, I never wanted to have to choose between tennis and a family, the tennis star wrote. I don't think it's fair. If I were a guy, I wouldn't be writing this because I'd be out there playing and winning while my wife was doing the physical labor of expanding our family. Maybe I'd be more of a Tom Brady if I had the opportunity, she added. Don't get me wrong. I love being a woman and I love every second of being pregnant with Olympia. I was one of those annoying women who adored being pregnant and working uh, until the day that I had to report to the hospital, although things got super complicated on the other side. And she shared that if, if I have to choose between building my tennis resume and building my family, I choose the latter. As she explained that when it comes to her daughter, nothing is a sacrifice for her. It all just makes sense, she said. Okay. so. Obviously, I agree with that. You know, if it's between building your your resume for your job versus, you know, building your family, the latter always makes sense there. Uh, you know, her uh, kind of wanting to, you know, be there for her family and how that's a great idea. Like, obviously, obviously, that's a great thing. But she's literally lamenting her biggest superpower as a human being and as a woman, which it's highly transphobic of her to talk about the fact that she loves being a woman because, you know, what is that? But she's lamenting her ability to grow and care for a child and her family. Again, go back to her own words here. I don't think it's fair. If I were a guy, I wouldn't be writing this because I'd be out there playing and winning while my wife was doing the physical labor of expanding our family. So the big takeaway on this one is, guys, no matter how privileged you are in life, as long as you check at least one intersectional box, you too can be a massive victim. Isn't that great? Isn't that great news? That you can literally be one of the most privileged human beings on the planet, one of the most tremendous success stories, one of the greatest athletes, a tremendous example to young girls everywhere and all that stuff. But gosh darn it, if she just weren't a woman, ugh, she just wishes that her husband could carry that baby and deal with the physical labor of expanding our family. But that's where we are now. That's where we are now in culture. That's where we are now in society. We're lamenting the good things that God gave to us as a gift. God gave women the ability to carry children as a gift. God gave men the ability to protect and provide for a family as a gift. And we look at it as if, oh, gosh, if I were to do it, I would do it this way. 
and we're going to keep seeing that drift in culture. So we'll be here for all of it, guys. So keep coming back. We'll keep talking about it. All right, guys, before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. Add and Dr. Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So, guys, don't forget to support the sponsor of today's show, KC Cattle Company. Go to kccattlecompany.com. That's kccattlecompany.com. Use the promo Kyle to get 15% off your order. Again, that promo code is just my first name, Kyle. That's K-Y-L-E for 15% off of your order at kccattlecompany.com. Also, I've got a link here in the show notes for the donation page. So, undaunted.life backslash donate. We need you guys to do all the stuff that we have coming up. A lot of money needs to be spent. So we need your resources. Also, I've got the sign up link for those of you that plan to need childcare for the September the 18th speech that I'm delivering at Faith Bible Church in Edmond, Oklahoma. I've got a link to Joby Martin's sermon uh, from week seven of his Psalm series. And then I've got a link to everything else that I talked about in the show, including the JRE episode where he talks to Seth Dillon and then everything else from the quick hitters. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And also, we want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is their song, Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album, Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness. Keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. Keep seeking the Lion of Judah. <laughs>